0: welcome to T3. Today, tomorrow's technologies. Your host is Jose Negron. We take the guesswork out of technological jargon so that you know what's next, why it's great or not so great, and how you can benefit from it by learning about it early. Now, here is Jose Negron.
1: Good morning, folks, and welcome, uh, everyone. This is your host, Jose Negron on Voice America on the Variety Channel hosting the lead technology show t3 today tomorrow's technologies first of all i'd like to thank my audience for listening to t3 throughout the united states and of course our international listeners i'm always quite surprised as we picked up more listeners throughout the u.s but specifically our international countries we've got about eight countries out there listening to us and we're projecting uh Three times a week, twice a day during those times, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. As a reminder to our audience, T3 is a program that integrates the techies with the non-techies. And the purpose of that is to successfully talk about and discuss and understand future technology and how it changes our lifestyle. To keep our audience involved with the T3 show, call 866-4222. 725788, or email me at todaytomorrowstechnologies at uh, gmail.com. As a reminder, our our topic today is uh, emerging technologies and innovation. Are we changing the status quo of the US defense? Uh, To help us talk about this, I had brought in an expert, uh, Patrick Tucker. Uh, Patrick writes uh, and edits For the Defense One, focusing on innovation and technologies on future U.S. defense and national security landscape. Patrick has also written uh, about emerging technologies in several magazines, uh, Slate, The Sun, MIT Technology Review, Wilson Quarterly, the American Legion magazine, and many others. Before starting at Defense One in 2014, Patrick was the deputy editor and top correspondent for the Futurist magazine. He worked there for nine years writing about AI, IT, uh, cybernetics, uh, nanotechnology, genetics, uh, inventions, climate control, many other topics in the science field. But most importantly, he is an author. Uh, He authored The Naked Future, What Happens in a World That Anticipates Your Every Move. I believe it was published in 2014. Okay, so today what I'd like to do is break out our three segments for our show. Our first uh, segment, we'll talk about uh, Patrick's career, discuss his uh, book that he wrote, The Naked Future, and talk a little bit of uh, a few of the key articles. The second part of the segment, I'd like to talk about the articles, both in Defense One and the Futurist, as far as future technologies. And, and then finally, the third, what does the future really involve for us? How, what, do we, what can we expect? So we'll break out those uh, segments that way. Uh, so now let's start with the program. Patrick Tucker, welcome to T Three, and thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
2: Hey, thank you for having me,
1: well, Patrick. Uh, I look over your career, and your know, pretty interesting career. More importantly, but the first thing I got to ask you: what got you started in 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 writing, and then what got you started in writing about technology and innovation?
2: Uh, well, I always enjoyed. Uh, as, a, as a kid, and, and later on, grappling with ideas through language. I was kind of an isolated kid, I guess you could say. Um, I spent a lot of time in my own uh, imaginative worlds, and uh, that lends itself to, I think, uh, later on in life, a literary mindset, uh, which I had great opportunity to develop at Sarah Lawrence, where I got my undergrad, and then later at Johns Hopkins, where I got my graduate degree in writing. Uh, but it wasn't long after I... Uh, started uh, attending Johns Hopkins that I took a job at the Futurist magazine which was uh, uh, also a fantastic opportunity and that's what spurred me to writing uh, specifically about technology there were originally if you're familiar with formal futurism as a practice then you might know this very few people are and so uh, many people are sort of surprised to learn that it's a, it's a field It's not so much a vocation but it is everybody's sort of second vocation is how we used to describe it um, there are five areas of futurism, uh, or, or applying foresight practice to the uh, study of trends, and those areas were demographics. These are areas where you can uh, go out, use the scientific method to collect data, and then uh, forecast from that a range of po- uh, possible futures and also, hopefully, forecast a range of probabilities about those futures, which is how foresight is employed to help you make, make plans. One area was demographics, the environment, uh, economics, government, and uh, science and technology. And so one of the things that I very quickly began to pick up on as I was, was, was covering the newest science-based research across those fields was that only science and technology was the one that was moving really fast. And so that went kind of against everything that uh, futurism was invented uh, kind of to do, which was to forecast with a high degree of credibility and probability what was going to happen. And you could do that in these really slow-moving areas, like demographics, like the environment, uh, economics, to a certain extent, government policy. Technology, because of the IT revolution, especially in the 2000s, was moving so fast that I knew that uh, if you wanted to talk about the future in a way that was going to be really relevant to people, you had to focus as much as possible on technology because that was the blind spot because of revolutions in IT pushing it to move so quickly.
1: Yeah, the IT uh, revolution really pushed a lot of the S and T forecasting and in in the dynamics of all that. So that, uh, that quite impressive that you were at John Hopkins. Uh, started with the Future Magazine. Most people don't even understand there is a Future Magazine out there. So I appreciate you explaining the uh, the pro- uh, the forecasting and the probability statements there. As you went on in the Future Magazine, you covered a lot of areas there uh, and. Obviously, it must have influenced you in in writing your book, uh, the, the naked future. What happens in the world that anticipates your every move? What are the key thing themes out of that book, and what well, why did you even write it? Uh,
2: well, thanks. Thank you for the question as well. Um, the one of the things that I noticed very early on in writing about emerging technology for the futurist, I paid a lot of attention to uh, what was then a uh, largely theoretical discussion about applications and the relevance of artificial intelligence. And in uh, 2005 or 6, this was uh, a discussion that was being had in Silicon Valley at sort of the, what you might call the sea level retreat level. So what that means is you would have uh, very important sort of luminary people talking about artificial intelligence, but they would talk about it uh, during retreats. Like in, those, right. mm-hmm. uh, in, in, the, in that setting where they would be out um, away from their actual meaningful revenue-generating work. So it was this uh, interesting ideascape to, that you could engage in with people that were at the forefront of the technology revolution, but it wasn't yet relevant to what they were doing. Um, right. And as uh, time went on, and I began to cover foresight uh, more and more uh, uh, in terms of helping like my leadership understand trends in that area, I noticed something, and that was that uh, the result of big data, just one of the consequences of the simple fact of everyone's digitized life becoming larger and larger in contrast to their non-digitized lives that was creating this surplus of data that could help refine probability forecasts across uh, really any any space you could observe. But foresight as a practice remained this kind of weird boutique practice among folks in uh, consultancy shops, mostly in Washington, D.C., but some in Boston and some in New York. And uh, there were still people walking around sort of trying to charge money uh, for calling themselves futurists. Right, right. It was this Mm -hmm. sort of like weird thing where uh, you know, in order to really understand the outcome of different trends that you could perceive right now, if you're not using the vast amount of digitized information that you can bring to bear on that problem, then my theory was that you're not doing it right. I mean, you're not practicing foresight, right. And uh, really I, my intent with that book is to help everybody understand, you know, something that's very core to me, which is that everybody's a futurist. It's just that no one's a really good one. Um, (laughs) But this is an innate ability (laughs) to us. But but, uh, more importantly, that we're on the cusp of a new way of engaging with the future that's actually run by data, that wherein we can make an an assessment about the probable outcome of of any uh, particular trend with a higher degree of credibility. And it's going to feel like magic because... The, mm-hmm. This is the effect of big data. It's the same thing uh, that we saw with the original IT technology revolution with computers. You know, you go back to the 1950s and computers were incredibly expensive. There were about three or of Two. them or so uh, on different university campuses and military installations within the United States, uh, Correct. one, of course, mm-hmm. in, in, in England. And then as uh, you watch trends in miniaturization, Then what were three computers at incredible cost become a few dozen. You get to the 1980s and you have uh, uh, desktop computers in Fortune 500 companies and sometimes on the desks of uh, very early adopter type folks uh, that were out there working with these things at home. And then you get to 2007 and everyone uh, is carrying around a computer in their pocket that's exponentially more uh, capable and exponentially cheaper than what existed in the 1950s, and I knew that if that trend applied to just regular hardware and IT, then it also applied to big data. So the premise of the book is that the big data that we create, that today we give away to our devices and third parties, and that is today the tool of large entities to use kind of for whatever their aims are, whether it's to market to us, whether it's to influence us, whether it's to coerce us, whether it's to surveil us, that that trend would continue and that we would all eventually be able to use big data in a way that was going to enrich and improve our own life uh, and in many ways defend us from these large institutions that we feel sort of coerced and surveilled by or rather to balance out that playing field. But I also didn't necessarily project that that transition would be as seamless as it was with IT because, uh, you know, the stakes are very different. So I, I wanted to first put that out there. That uh, the revolution in big data was a thing that could you could actually get excited about that it was actually going to help your life at some point in the future. But B to help people feel empowered to demand that their data be useful to them, not just to uh, these entities that uh, they give it away to, whether it's uh, phone entities, whether it's telecoms, whether it's third-party marketers or third-party websites, etc.
1: Right, right, right. No, that was uh, a critical factor. I mean, where I became involved in the uh, kind of uh, third-party data was more for advertising companies, you know, trying to understand your wants and needs and your likes or dislikes so that uh, they can really push advertising to you. And in the big data, the collection of that be, uh, became more and more, as you explained. And the critical part is it's an explosion right now. And, and hopefully uh, uh, people understand the importance of their own data and everything thing. So let me ask right. you this as you finish writing the book and you, we talked a little bit about the themes uh, what, what else surprised you when you were on the Futurist staff?
2: Oh, um, yeah like, like I said the, just the simple acceleration of how quickly this uh, stuff was moving as more and more people could talk together and collaborate all at once. Uh, that was surprising to me to have folks that were um, so very smart and at the forefront of this revolution not being able to talk about what was actually going to happen next uh, with any, like, unanimity or consensus. Because that didn't happen in any other field, you know? Like, in demographics, Mm -hmm. there's, uh, you know, people that understand broad uh, generational social shifts, and they use this for... Uh, you know, marketing or for tailoring services, et cetera. And uh, like there's field consensus about about some things in the environment. There's field consensus about what is the, what is a knowable future, what is an unknowable future, the risk area. Uh, there's a ton of modeling that shows the, you know, probable futures, et cetera. So there's scientific and uniform field consensus there. But in uh, technology, and particularly as a result of AI, you would talk to Somebody, for instance, that was steeped in AI, that did serum proving, that did very abstract, very high level uh, work in artificial intelligence from a theoretical number standpoint. And they would say that we're going to have human level artificial intelligence very certainly by the year 2030. Uh, It's as inevitable as the rising of the sun. And then you would talk to somebody like I did many times with Rodney Brooks, a roboticist charged with the very difficult task of actually making, uh, you know, rudimentary artificial in, artificially intelligent systems yeah. right, operate in real space, in physical space. And he would say, it will be 200 plus years before we get anything even remotely human-like out of these things. Trust me, I've been working very hard on this for a long time. And that gap in uh, expert consensus opinion was sort of astounding to me and just really showed that uh, this is an area that's advancing in a way that uh, defies reasonable, uh, a lot of reasonable prediction.
1: Yeah, I, I look at uh, any type of uh, S&T uh, prediction as kind of uh – it's um, you're taking a lot of risk, and I just take my own. Um, I mean, I, I I was fortunate enough to be the program manager for the first uh, Grand Challenge of autonomous vehicles, and I look back now, almost 14 years later, uh, coming up on the 15th year anniversary next year in March, and I go, wow. We've come a long ways, but uh, when I took over the project, no one believed it, you know. And I always have a quote, uh, and I'm trying to find it right now, I'll find it in a minute, but uh, it's kind of like uh, Kitty Hawk and the Wright brothers trying to fly on the airplane. Uh, it, it's same same prediction, you know. Uh, the airplane won't materialize until 50 or 100 years, and there's a quote in the New York Times, the Wright brothers flew ki- uh, at Kitty Hawk and went 120 feet. So it's it's interesting, yeah. that debate. And everything. The, can I
2: ask you something? You were the program yeah. manager for the, for the Grand Challenge, really?
1: Yep very very first Grand Challenge, uh, the autonomous vehicle race from uh, Los uh, from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. Uh, I built that entire process with the uh, team scoring uh, SCORE internationals and, of course, a lot of DARPA folks. And I was the yeah. first program manager. So that took about three or four years of my life. But uh, I look back now and, and, and look at what we have, the sensors, the automation. the uh, since, uh, I mean, I'd love to do a story about the guys who were in the first Grand Challenge and where they are today. Because the technology came from that. And the technology industry these guys are influencing today it is uh, it's just fantastic you know if you take yeah. Big great big red out of Carnegie Mellon Sebastian who's moved from Google to you know I think he's working on UAV platforms now and in uh, scoring yeah. in Nationals, internationals the guys who did all the off-road a lot of that technology from the off-road went to the desert you know because they yeah. been, they were used to banging around in uh, heavy desert condition anyway we've got 30 yeah. seconds left Anything else you'd like to tell the audience real quick before we go to the next commercial break?
2: Um, you know, I think I'm good, but let's talk about self-driving cars when we get back because that's, that's amazing. It's, it's a totally great uh, <laughs> opportunity to discuss how uh, technology trends are going to shape life in a ways that a lot of people aren't predicting.
1: It is amazing to me when I look back at all the different facets from uh, you know from the sensor capability to the mechanical uh, to just technical materials that being developed it is fantastic and everything uh, folks yeah. uh, we're going to be uh, taking our next commercial break here in a few minutes but uh, you're listening to t3 show today and we're talking about emerging technologies and innovations. Uh, are we changing, the, changing the, status, the status quo of the U.S. Department? Of Defense. Our expert today is Patrick Tucker. He's uh, editor and writer for Defense One. Spent a little time working the Futurist magazine, and we discussed about uh, a lot of technologies. And he was really at the heart and soul of a few of the AI, IT, cybernetics, uh, nanotechnology revolution there, and that landscape is changing daily. So we're off to our first commercial break, and we'll be right back.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Are you finding your frequency? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Our humanity is a
0: thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, The Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming
1: live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: listening to today tomorrow's technologies to reach the program today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to today tomorrow's technologies at gmail.com now back to our show
1: welcome back folks uh, we're having a heavy discussion on emerging technology and innovation are we changing the status quo of the u.s. defense and my guest today is uh, Patrick Tucker, writer, editor uh, for Defense One, uh, focusing on U.S. defense and national security. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, his uh, employment, both at Defense One a little bit. We're going to get into that a little bit more. Uh, his time as uh, a as, uh, uh, beginning or starting off as a writer and then writing his own book, uh, The Naked Future, What Happens in the World That Anticipates Your Every Move, talking about uh, a big data and the revolution of big data and the usefulness of that data, and we ought to own that data. And more importantly, uh, his contribution, almost nine years uh, as a, co- a technical correspondent and editor at Future Magazine. Uh, to, now I'd like to talk, as we Took a break. We were talking about a little bit of the grand challenge, the autonomous uh, vehicle race from Las Vegas to to Los excuse me, Los Angeles to Las Vegas, 2004, 2005, 2007. A lot of uh, new technology is coming up on that. So uh, I think Patrick wanted to make a few comments on that uh, particular capability, that particular challenge, and and we'll take it from there, Patrick.
2: Yeah, I. I It was just sort of interesting to hear that uh, you were the program manager for it. It's going to be like historically one of the, I think, key technology moments that defines the next century was the completion of that, of that course by an autonomous vehicle. Um, And uh, we were talking a little bit about Sebastian Thrun, who was the guy that led the Stanford team, in the 2005 Grand Challenge that uh, actually won the challenge. And uh, what's fascinating about it is that, uh, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, this is a, it it really shows how difficult it is for the military to incorporate even its own R&D into concepts of operation, because uh, it's only very recently that uh, the commercial world has been talking about how to use this technology, and and, uh, that's a problem area that is, for them, I mean, there's legislative issues, there's insurance issues, you've got civil laws, you've got uh, state laws, federal laws, and, and uh, uh, a whole bunch of issues. And that hasn't stopped the commercial world from plowing ahead with investment, with experimentation, etc. This is a, uh, it was a military proof of concept that the military has yet to really incorporate. I mean, this is, they have plans to do so now. But uh, right, it's kind right. of amazing <laughs> that they <laughs> developed this, and it took nearly a decade for them to begin to talk about uh, mm-hmm. self driving, uh, autonomous convoys, uh, and, and how that actually becomes a near term future for them. They've been talking about it for 10 years, but uh, incorporation without all of these other obstacles that the commercial investors have, they still lag behind. I think that that's fascinating, and it really shows a cultural issue with the DOD that a lot of folks are very impatient with, uh, like across the DOD, by the way, like certainly from the top I hear it a ton, certainly from the operator level I hear it a ton, it's just that middle section that seems really happy with uh, how slow and plodding everything is. Um, yeah. But it's also, <laughs> no, but you're yeah, absolutely I mean, right.
1: You point out a very important part. Remember uh, when we did the challenge the first time? We had a congressional mandate. A third of the vehicles uh, between uh, I think it's 2015, 2017 uh, needed to be uh, you know autonomous. I look back and is do we have we really met that mark? And the answer is no. Right. Right. It's, it's
2: sort of amazing. And so now we're talking I, when I go and I talk to. Uh, DOD leaders about what their technological ambitions, most of them are like, well, let's just try and borrow as much autonomous, uh, driving technology as we can from the Valley. And it's like, well, you guys had that chance, I think a decade ago when you were making this thing for the Valley, that later the Valley's going to go up and make a pile of money on it. It's just fascinating. Um, yeah. but the, the other aspect of Sebastian Thrun that I think is, is fascinating and that challenge Every so often he goes out and he talks about uh, artificial intelligence and its future. And he, uh, I caught him in 2012. And his vision for how autonomous driving is going to change the world, it was fascinating to me. He saw uh, a world where this entire network of autonomous vehicles, in a, for instance, in Washington, D.C., in an urban environment, they would be in constant communication with one another. So it was, uh, you, you take the, the very difficult ch- stochastic challenge that was the grand challenge where you've got a, a car It has to really, in some way, some simple way, understand the world around it and, and make a ton of its own decisions. You, you reduce the complexity there of that challenge for that individual car by networking them all together in an urban setting where every self-driving car knows where every other car is. They can all share each other's data. They can all communicate in a seamless, almost highway, way. Uh, and you basically create a situation where you don't have traffic anymore, where that's a thing of a past, where yeah. in many ways you don't even have to worry about parking anymore because the self-driving cars would park miles away They would share communication amongst each other and with you and your digital devices. They would be able to anticipate when you would need them. This was his vision, the the maker of the self-driving cars in many ways. They would be where you needed them to be before you called them. And then after they dropped you off, they would depart elsewhere and park, again, miles away from like a city center where real estate is scarce and expensive. Or they would just go service some other uh, user that needed to use that car. So this is the sort of uh, car sharing Uber model applied to that, right? And right. I, I listened to it, right? It's a, it, so it's a wonderful vision, and, and it's absolutely now. what Silicon Valley is rushing to create Uber with create. Its, uh, autonomous driving. Sure, yep. Google. Yep. They, this is what they want, and but this is why you need to have, I think, a cross disciplinary futures approach to talk about these technological issues. And I feel so uh, fortunate to have had that. city No, that's these, a great web, discussion. Right. Uh, and, right. and I'll me, tell you, me, uh, me, one of the things yeah, that
1: I was involved in, Patrick, uh, Oshkosh uh, was trying to put their uh, autonomous vehicle and some of the uh, technologies that he'd learned from the challenges. And you, you got to understand Oshkosh participated in all three of them uh, from right. the four, uh, first one in oh four the five, and seven. So they did even the urban challenge. So they were, they're still out there. But to get, if you uh, listen to their business development guy and marketing guy, uh, the interest of the military was still not there. It was still hesitant to take that leap, uh, leap of faith. Yeah. Where now the yeah. commercial uh, car industry, I mean, you got every manufacturer out there who is a major manufacturer pumping in dollars into this uh, yeah. uh, business, you know, and they believe yeah. in that future. Uh, so that's yeah. something that uh, you pointed out very uh, critically that needs to be looked at some more.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I, at the same time, Oshkosh did just win that new huge, huge contract to replace the, uh, you know, the general, uh, um, to, to replace the, the fighting vehicle, the, the fighting play, basically replace the Bradley. Yeah. Mm. And I think that a huge part of that was because as they can't say exactly what it was that pushed. Uh, the thing towards Oshkosh that pushed that contract with Oshkosh. But uh, having spent some time talking to them about the Terramax self-driving right. uh, software that they have across all of those platforms, I imagine that must have been a huge draw because they have had, because they, they spent their own R&D money on it, uh, they've yeah. had a self-driving software program that they've been refining for a decade that works quite well. And, I, and they were, they can demonstrate it on uh, the fighting vehicles and the, the different uh, vehicle platforms that they were showing off to the Army. And I think that was probably a huge factor. But, well, if, not, if I, I yeah, could Go, go return, ahead and ask your question. Real, yeah, yeah. Return real quick to, like, the whole consequence of Sebastian Thrun's, like, vision of, of uh, the urban future of self-driving cars where the entire city is remade uh, to be basically less car-intensive. And that's mm-hmm. a wonderful vision for us as consumers when we think about it. But schools use parking tickets to pay for stuff. <laughs> I mean, cities use that revenue to pay for education, to pay for a bunch of things. And yeah. so, this really shows how revolutions in technology—that's you know the makers of that those revolutions—they'll sell them to the public as being, uh, you know, a fantastic windfall. In many ways, they are. But until you address uh, the systematic effects then you open yourself up to uh, basically a lot of disruption. And so this is why I think it's so important to talk about uh, disruptive technology to widen the area between the point where that technology is forecast and the time you have to do something about it. Because it, basically there's ev- every city manager in this country has to come up with a revenue scheme for funding a lot of their critical services That is not based on parking tickets for the next, and the time to do it is now. So they, yeah, and you know,
1: and you bring yeah. up another important point. Let me just, uh, sorry for interrupting you, but uh, Alex yeah, Davis out no, of please. Wire Magazine. we were talking. He was, uh, you know, he follows the transportation technology changes, and he was talking about the megacities and how that whole structure is changing. And what you just mentioned about the financial structure, which is an element I didn't, I don't think we either brought it up, uh, is something that needs to be looked at. I mean, the whole thing is being revolutionized. How do I generate the funds? To to keep operating cities in those megacities. Yeah, yeah that's a
2: yeah. yeah, good exactly. point. Exactly. So when we, talk, when we talk about artificial intelligence today, we do so uh, with a lot of uh, sort of fretting and, and uh, knuckle rubbing about potential automation of, of aspects of labor. And that's something to worry about, but there's actually just a ton of other ways that artificial intelligence is going to change life and potentially disrupt systems that uh, we thought of as static and permanent, and they aren't. Uh, and we're going to see a lot of different disruptions. And in the long run, that's probably a good thing. No one likes paying parking tickets. I'm looking at two in my car right now for 200 bucks. But yeah, but nevertheless, you live in D.C., yeah? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> you live in D.C., so. Uh, I
2: know, I know. It's a mess. For our audience, I mean,
1: DC yeah, is another yeah. mega, oh, not a mega city, but it's a city atmosphere, commuting, and, uh, and parking is expensive. <laughs> so I yeah. understand why Patrick got his two tickets. Yeah,
2: oh, I did. Well, I parked on a, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, they came and they towed it. It was two minutes after four o'clock and I didn't expect that. But man, I just, we'll yeah. leave that happens. aside. But that's why <laughs> that's for enough. the future, you know, it's I uh, won't have that to deal with anymore. But,
1: uh, right. right, right, right. Well, I, as you bring out some interesting perspective in the autonomous vehicle, I've always thought that uh, – to me, it's always been a revolution and game changer. We're just now at the beginning of the forefront of really understanding the changes of a driverless car. And as you explained it, and Sebastian is painting a picture of the future, for me, it was the same thing. It was I'm in the house. I want to go to the grocery store. car starts. It takes me to the grocery store. It knows where to go. It gets me back Thank home and it's not the Tesla model which is right now you know you got to do a little integration human machine uh, autonomy uh, autonomy, and that integration but a full up autonomous vehicle uh, which is uh, sensing everything it's predicting it, it is uh, really uh, kind of your and yourself it's uh, you know the second part of your body almost because it knows and anticipates your actions and everything but yeah. let me change it over here yeah, we've yeah. got about four more minutes let's talk about other technologies that you may have uh, Research and studied, uh, or, or read about, or and even wrote about uh, for the U.S. defense. What, what's another one out there that you see that's important? We've got the driverless car. You got artificial intelligence. Uh, I know you've written several articles on cyber and, and that process.
2: Right, right. Uh, so, in in terms of cyber, again, like the area that's going to be most changed by that is the addition of artificial intelligence to. Uh, detect mm. bugs, vulnerabilities in systems, and potentially to detect bugs, vulnerabilities, and uh, execution and uh, exploitation techniques for mm. taking advantage of that. Yes. Uh, this is something that uh, General Paul Nakasone, who's the new head of U.S. Cyber Command and the NSA, uh, has has talked about. He's uh, very ambitious and in many ways aggressive in how he wants to use artificial intelligence uh, both for defense. <laughs> and for cyber offense. Uh, so that's an aspect of that. But the other uh, thing that we're going to notice about cyber within the Defense Department is how much faster and, and much better things are going to start happening when they move to one large uh, commercial cloud provider for their data. Uh, it's okay. going to make the entire, which is a thing that they're working on now. And it's it's sort of controversial uh, among these uh basically cloud service providers that can't meet DOD's need because they need a huge cloud and these little guys make these little tiny clouds. They're trying right, to bust right. up that contract. But but uh, uh, that's going to be a huge uh, step forward in the defense department when they've got a large commercial cloud provider for the vast majority of what they do. And then they can build up little clouds on top of that. Um, and uh, But that's going to be a, a huge game changer for them. Uh, the other thing that they're talking about now a lot, uh, because we've returned to what they're calling the era of, uh, you know, grand competition against mm. peer adversaries, meaning China and Russia, is the return of hypersonics, uh, yeah. hypersonic technologies, and space technology. So, uh, you know, over the last two decades, as we talked about fighting wars uh, against, um, you know, basically. Uh, non-state actors throughout the Middle East that were uh, deprived of resources but full of murderous intent as we shift, uh, as the Defense Department shifts their focus to uh, Russia, China, and their technological evolution, Uh, they're focusing a ton on space. So that means putting assets up there, getting the most out of the assets that they have up there, and potentially defending those in space from aggressors that's literally like space-based weapons. Um, and also, uh, yeah, hypersonic missiles and, and missile defense, huge areas of potential uh, revolution. There are a lot of investment and a lot of focus on uh, delivering against that threat.
1: No, uh, it, those are all game changers, and uh, and will increase. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a tech consultant uh, still staying in the, in the DOD and the commercial world. But uh, those are right on target as far as the expansion. Uh, let me say we've got about 30 seconds left. Is there another technology you want to bring up or anything like that?
2: Well, you hear a lot about quantum computing, and that's yeah. Uh, also an area of active fascination and, and, and research dollars has yet to turn into a super thing. Uh, if you're listening it there, I would tell you the best way to really get a hold of, of all of these trends and how they're going to shape your life in the future, uh, go back and study statistics. Uh, in terms of artific- like understanding artificial intelligence from a fundamental level, from a practical level, from a really grand level, statistics is uh, the foundation that you're going to apply to uh, everything related to machine learning uh, to artificial intelligence and everything else it's been, it has been—it was okay. hugely uh, helpful for me and, well, let's, uh, just, so that's, let's that's stay on I that
1: part. let's stay on that trend Patrick let's uh, go off to our second commercial break uh, we're talking to Patrick Tucker who writes for Defense One and we're talking about U.S. defense and natural security uh, landscape uh, technology innovation and how it will change so let's go to our second commercial break and we'll be back in a moment
2: Divorce or domestic family issues can take their toll not only on the adults who are party to it, but also to their children. Sometimes separation or divorce are far better solutions than staying around a toxic relationship. Now there's a show that listens and provides solutions. Listen for Reclaiming Your Life with host Don Christensen. In this program, we discuss family crisis issues which can happen to anyone. Divorce with dignity is possible, and working together can achieve wonderful results. Listen Tuesdays at 10 a.m pacific 1 p.m eastern on voice america variety
0: in fitness and health we all deserve a second chance join host michael scogg for the program you only stronger you always have the ability to start fresh even if you slip up on your diet or fitness program even small steps taken throughout the day can help each show will conclude with weekly assignments that you can use and we'll want to hear your feedback You, Only Stronger, airs live Mondays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. We're listening to today tomorrow's technologies to reach the program today please call in to 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788 or send an email to today tomorrow's technologies at gmail.com now back to our show
1: Welcome back, folks. Uh, T3 Show, uh, Today, Tomorrow's Technologies. Uh, We're discussing emerging technologies and innovation. Are we changing the status quo for the U.S. defense? Um, In this third segment, I'd like to expand our discussion on what future uh, technologies will bring to the uh, uh, Defense Department as well as national security. And uh, we'll begin our discussion uh, uh, with uh, Tucker uh, Patrick, uh, you have been writing with Defense One for about four years. You mentioned several great concepts here: quantum computing is still to be determined, uh, uh, the ability to really study the tech shift between Russia and China, and then of course the uh, uh, the explosion of cyber AI, and 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 more importantly, as we move into space, in the space force. Uh, what what do you see the future, as the future begins to evolve, how do you see that evolving from your, your present position?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I think that we're beginning within the Defense Department, uh, not we, but the Defense Department is beginning to grapple with how uh, important and also how vulnerable their space-based assets are. Um, and so what you're going to see is a lot more emphasis on uh, Putting a lot more things in space in the event that something bad happens to, uh, space-based assets, basically satellites, that we always thought would be permanent fixtures of u- utility for the Defense Department. Like we, it took us until very late as a country to appreciate that, um, incredibly expensive, incredibly important communications and intelligence satellites uh, might actually be vulnerable to attack from a rival nation because uh, that's not something that, that's not a capability that Al Qaeda, for instance, ever presented to us. It's not a deliver that they ever showed. Um, and so we're beginning to grapple with that, and you'll see uh, this is a part of the justification for the uh, Space Force idea. Uh, and I, I'm agnostic as to whether or not that is ultimately the best way to, to deal with this problem set. But it is a real problem set. I had a conversation very recently with Lieutenant General Robert Ashley. He's the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, and uh, he, he's been a close watcher of that area. And I asked him, how long is it going to be before a peer adversary has state-based weapons to challenge or to basically destroy U.S. satellites? And they, he said the very near future. That's an active area of engagement for them. I was uh, really taken aback by that. Um, and in terms of uh, other trends that I think are going to affect national security in a way that might surprise people and is going to be kind of scary, um, you know, I saw uh, an article over the weekend from Cat, they're a very great open source uh, online news site that followed some previous work from some other folks and they found, what Bell and Cat found was that uh, soldiers running around wearing these biometric, like, fitness-optimizing devices, these wearables to sort of tell you how much you're jogging, how well, yep. whether or not you're beating your record, all of yep, that, yep. They, they found them on uh, clandestine bases. They found them in areas where uh, you would not want to be broadcasting a location. And uh, they uh, showed... That this is a vulnerability. And when I talk to a lot of it's intelligence folks, device. this is something that they, they bring up repeatedly that, uh, you know, we're used to dealing with armies where the army is sort of a uniform thing and then uh, they depart from the battlefield and they go back to their sort of regular life and it's in that space where we, where we confront them. But that's not the way adversaries view, uh, you know, how to gain leverage in, in the new information space. Uh, war and combat in the 21st century, uh, even when it's not kinetic, when it's when it's warfare of a different sort, is going to be. It's going to feel much more personal. It's going right. to take advantage of, of many more levers, economic, uh, social, and personal. And yep. that's a big area where we have yet to catch up. And. Information technology is the key to all of that because that's how you gain information, whether it's on a nation or on an individual. That's how you influence them because you're able to get in front of their face with a message at a particular time, and that's how you make that message more convincing, whatever it is. Technology is at the root of all of that, of all the different ways adversaries could pull levers to kind of push us back or to push us to where they want us to be as opposed to where we want to be. And in many ways, we're very used to just thinking about war and combat and military activity as this very distinct space of life that civilians and the rest of us don't ever have to be concerned with. And thats I don't think that that's a good way to think about it, and uh, I don't think that it's relevant anymore to the way we live.
1: No, I mean, over the last decade uh, since um, 9-11, I mean, that has been changing. And now we're moving to a nation state. So information technology, uh, non-kinetic type capabilities, space control, all of that's going to change uh, both from a military perspective and the civilian life, because we're all integrated yeah. into one. What influenced the military will influence the civilian population vice versa. So that is a, a right. very perceptive. Yeah. Uh, very perceptive. The real critical part now, as we move into the technology and innovation, is uh, is preparation and preparation. Uh, and, and we started our discussion before this is that uh, we have uh, through uh, you know the DARPAs and the IARPAs and the HARPAs and other um, federal funded uh, univers- UARCs. Uh, we have capability in the in in industry. It has developed capability, but we're slow in bringing those type of technologies and innovation into our—I'm uh, going to call it our battle rhythm or our systems, uh, both for either offense or defense. And uh, uh, to me, the classic right. is the F-35. I mean, I look at it; it's a great airplane, but we're still not using it. Uh, to me, totally.
2: Yeah, yeah, so. exactly, and that's—it's uh, it, a great example. It was. Uh, In many ways, a very good idea, uh, but (laughs) the bureaucratic uh, mess that it it became uh, in many ways, without talking about the actual physical aircraft and how useful it's going to be in battle, but uh, all of the different uh, things that happened along the way of the program that got in the way of it being as useful as it could be that made it much more expensive than it had to be and then that delayed its actual deployment, that's really key to understanding how not to do something. And uh, the first question, I mean, I don't know if you've got a lot of folks out there that are super like military technology geeks, but the biggest question I think is probably um, uh, concurrent development is a, is a bad thing where you're paying a contractor to continually uh, fix problems that they themselves make because they didn't plan properly. That's a way to make things more expensive, but also don't design a single platform For everybody, like, don't you have to get over this idea that there's one super duper fantastic, like, multi-billion-dollar platform (laughs) solution? This is the F-111.
1: this is a, Patrick. Yeah. This is the F 111 process again. You know, we learned we yeah. thought we learned that in Vietnam. We came back to it because thinking about you know the the selling of one type platform, it just doesn't work. Uh, we have yeah, different yeah. needs, different missions, different yeah. uh structural differences in the airplane mechanical, uh, flight uh, profile that uh, we all need to understand. Uh, you bring up a, another yeah. great point. Yep, yeah, see, it's, it's true, it's exactly, and it's
2: you know. But the, the, when I talk to folks uh, at the very top level, like uh, you talk to, for instance, Mike Griffin, he's the mm-hmm. new uh, undersec for, for research and development, a new position created by Congress. He's so impatient with the like sort of bureaucratic uh, way in which the U.S. buys stuff. He's so eager to cut through uh, that, that he's downsizing the Pentagon by a lot, um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you talk to operators, and like i said they're too they're also impatient, so it's hard to figure out where uh like the problems come from where i, I can tell you where they want to go is they want to go to much more open architectures uh stuff that you can uh modify that you can uh, upgrade remotely because you're you're what you're really looking to upgrade most importantly is the software as opposed to the actual hardware um and stuff that is uh more sort of like ad hoc that you can plug and play in different, uh, tools and things like Legos, and you can almost create an entirely new platform to serve a specific mission set. Like that's what, uh, folks are really talking about wanting to do when you get like the top officials in a room and they talk about their grand ideas and schemes. But when you confront that, when you turn that against reality and what you find is there's a lot of, I mean, frankly, there's a lot of contractor, um, like when I say contractor, I mean like the big guys, They, the yeah, guys yeah. that don't want to give up market share. Um, no,
1: they you'll don't. You'll
2: find some uh, uh, challenge from them about, uh, you know, moving towards that sort of thing because these guys make their, their profit off of huge, magical, amazing single platforms. And there's folks even there within those organizations, within those companies that are really anxious for innovation and want to move towards something where you're not selling a single jet for a gazillion dollars for something. I think yeah. the F-35 is about 80 million a plane now. It was at one point 150 million a plane, which was crazy. Uh, but yeah. you know, it's hard to calculate the lifespan side of these things. There are folks within these companies that are also really anxious to push forward, but that means in many ways shrinking the company down from a thing that it was. And so yeah. they meet with resistance inside, too, because you're dealing with entrenched interests, that, uh, and that's the enemy of innovation in most areas of life.
1: Yes, that's correct. I mean, no one wants a change, therefore you don't innovate. I mean, that's uh, one piece is the R&D piece. The other piece is, uh, and I'll I'll tell you, I get confronted every time, the current budget uh, cycle, the budget process, you know, that's green money, red money, blue money. I said, oh, my God. Uh, we've got to get away from this because it doesn't allow us to move or shift. Uh, but we did it yeah. to ourselves maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, and Congress has uh, uh, piled on to limit uh, movement of money uh, and colors of money from various pieces. We've got about yeah. uh, two, uh, three more minutes. Give me about two minutes of, uh, you know, encapsulate the future for me, Patrick. But where do you see us going based on everything we talked about right now? What are are the hard-hitting aspects you're going to see in the next year or two and then uh, maybe five five years from now?
2: Yeah. Well, I think this is a good point because our discussion has been so broad. Uh, We've talked on so many different things. think the most important for me to understand about the role of technology in the future. It's going to become apparent to spark people in your organization or spark people around you both at the top of government and, and, uh, and everywhere in between, there is a smarter way to do something. And that smarter way is going to be more available to you sooner. And if you don't grab it uh, and become a champion for it within your own organization, then uh, you're going to be standing on the wrong side of history. We were talking just a moment ago about how um, Congress kind of mucks up the Pentagon buying power. And the reason Congress does that is because they're the representatives of the people and people need accountability and transparency. And so we outsource that to Congress and then we outsource that to a process that they get to control. It's a mess. You can move much faster, buy things better, buy things cheaper and still create public accountability. Uh, with data, with technology, in the same way. uh, We we all interact with digital companies that are successful. There's a new way to do just about everything. So find it now, because that's what's going to make dealing with these disruptive changes uh, much easier. And then you can actually use the wonderful breakthrough technologies that we're inventing in a way that may, gives you confidence and hope for the future as opposed to feeling like you are their victim or, or you are at their mercy.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, Patrick, I'd like to thank you, uh, first of all, for uh, being here. Uh, the hour has really gone by. We've got about a minute left. Let me just wrap up the show real quick. Uh, folks, we've been talking to uh, Patrick Tucker. He is a writer-editor uh, for Defense One, focusing on innovation technologies on future U.S. defense and national security. He is a futurist, uh, worked with the Future Magazine for about 10 years, written numerous articles, uh, and we've been talking about emerging technology innovation uh, are we changing the status quo in the U.S.? And as you can see, we talked a, a variety of subjects. Uh, the critical nugget to take away is uh, there's a better way to do things, and there's a smarter way to do things, and we need to move towards that. Uh, and so I'd like to thank Patrick for joining us today. Uh, Patrick, I uh, appreciate it. And then next week, uh, I can tell you it's going to be a great show. Uh, my guest next week is Trey Roski, the creator, inventor, TV producer of BattleBot. Combat robots. Uh, He was at the the forefront of robotic uh, revolution. Uh, He's the one that brought it to TV. We're going to have a discussion with him about the fantastic robot program that he has created captured everybody's imagination worldwide and I'm looking forward to talking to Trey Roski uh, next I'd like to talk about and thanking Dee Daniels my executive producer of course 83 Alexander Loreno for keeping me straight here and more importantly my crew and family who took over my spots to do my work today so I can spend an hour with my audience and and finally the audience I mean, we keep growing every week thank you very much uh, don't forget to call us and, uh, and send those emails in until next week, where we talk about uh, combat uh, robots and battle bots and the inception of that. And once again, thanks, uh, Patrick Tucker, for coming on for today's show. Uh, goodbye.
2: Hey, thanks for having, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Bye.
1: All right, uh, take care. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to today, tomorrow's technologies. We hope you'll join your host, Jose Negron, for another exciting program next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, Noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Enjoy the rest of your week.